Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Nice pass to Riley. To the right side of the floor, defended by Kispert now, drives, leans in, the runner, comes up short, choosing the rebounds and puts it in. We're tied at 90, three seconds left. Here's Suggs the other way, pull up, three for the win. Yes! Yes! Set yes! of the championship game! He knocked no! from 40 at the buzzer! Yes! The Bulldogs! Wow! Play for a national championship! April 4, 2021. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, dodo birds, and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me. It's 1.49 a.m. Eastern. The national title game is set on Monday night inside Lucas Oil Stadium here in Indianapolis. Gonzaga will play Baylor for the right to be called the champion of the 2021 NCAA tournament. That's because Baylor destroyed Houston on Saturday night, 78-59. That was game one. Then Miley performed. Then we got to game two, and it qualifies as an instant classic, all-time great Final Four game. Just an awesome, fun, enjoyable college basketball game. Gonzaga was very much on the ropes against UCLA, which closed as a 14-and-a-half-point underdog. The Zags trail for much of the game, never led by more than seven, never pulled away. They actually needed a charge call in the final seconds of regulation just to get to overtime, and then they won in OT when Jalen Suggs banked in what looked like about a 35-footer at the buzzer to break a 90-90 tie. Final score, Gonzaga 93, UCLA 90, dead leg. We will talk about the other national semifinal eventually, but we have to start with the nightcap, Gonzaga-UCLA. It feels like an all-time classic in this moment. From your perspective, how great was what we just watched? I want everyone listening to go ahead and rewind right now. Go back to the start of the podcast and listen to those calls again and let the chills hit you big time because I'm still wired. Like every other podcast we've done to this point that's been a post-round you know, post podcast here from Indianapolis, 
we've made it through, but we've been tired. I'm not tired. I'm, I'm, I, I can go all night, basically, and we won't. This is not going to be a two-hour podcast, I promise. But uh, to be in the building for that was unreal. Uh, I, I was in the building for Jenkins to beat Carolina to win the championship. I was in the building when Carson Edwards went out of his mind and almost knocked off Virginia, and then Mamadi Diakite had a shot to send it to OT. That was awesome. There have been some other really, really good NCAA tournament games and college basketball games I've been in the building for. But when you consider the teams involved, their NCAA tournament history together, Gonzaga's undefeated season on the line, the fact it had never been in this moment before this season. It was not in a close game in the final minute. It's playing a UCLA team that's already ripped out this team's heart in a tournament um, situation previously. It's in the Final Four. It's the first overtime game in a Final Four in 23 years. And Gonzaga should have been taken out in regulation. That shot by Jalen Suggs. I'm, I'm telling you that is a top three game in, in college basketball history. I'm putting it with Duke and Kentucky. And then whatever one else you want to put there, we can have that conversation. This was the greatest national semifinal in the history of the sport. It ends on a buzzer beater by a freshman star to keep an undefeated season alive and beat a blue blood program with 11 national championships to its name and four undefeated seasons to itself with its name. I was, I was truly stunned when the shot fell. I, I felt like I, I blacked out for about a second there because I couldn't believe the sequence there and we can get all that, but... That is my big picture takeaway. That was phenomenal, and and we've had a, a, a quality tournament, but forget about it. I Monday is just gravy at this point, Parrish. That is a game and a result that we should be talking about, referencing, having in highlight packages for 50 years going forward. The only thing that slightly takes away from it, because it has to, is the fact that it wasn't packed to the gills inside Lucas Oil Stadium, and you had all of that pomp and circumstance that would have otherwise surrounded it. Suggs on the table is amazing. That's my takeaway. Give me your thoughts. Well, what's wild is there were actually two previous moments in the game where it felt like, in slow motion, oh my God, this game is about to be over. And and the actual sequence where the game was actually over Pelled in comparison to those two. Mm. In other words, when Suggs caught the ball, uh, when Kispert inbounded it to Suggs, we're tied 90-90 after Juzang gets, Johnny Juzang gets a little stick, uh, little stick back floater to tie the score. I immediately look at the clock, 3.3 seconds. And when Suggs caught it, if somebody else caught it, you don't know. But when Suggs caught it and there's 3.3 left, as I sort of wrote in a column that'll publish overnight, uh, at CBSSports.com, any basketball coach will tell you in those types of situations, any competent ball handler, you can get at least a dribble a second, at least a dribble a second. So if you got if you got six seconds, you can get six dribbles. If you got three point three seconds, which was the case here, you can get three dribbles. And for an athlete, the caliber of Jalen Suggs, I knew when he caught the ball, he was always going to be able to launch a manageable shot. I didn't know if it'd be from forty feet or half. I I knew he. I assumed, I guess I didn't know anything, but when he caught the ball headed the proper direction on the run and 
UCLA was at because there was nobody on UCLA was going to stop him in the open court. Like if you're going to if you're going to divert him in any way, you got to do it as soon as he catches. Once he got going, I knew he was going to get a manageable shot. But still, you know, you don't expect that shot to go in. The two other instances where my uh, heart was in my throat, whatever, however that works, yeah. um, it's it's at the end of regulation when Juzang gets into the lane. And Drew Timmy steps up to 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 take that charge. Do you realize if that call goes the other way, that's it? It's over. I thought the game was ending, Parrish. That is where I, I thought, thought the, the game, game was, was over. over. I, even before the charge happened, I'm sitting there on press road. That's my side of the court. And I actually didn't have a good angle on the charge. So I wasn't sure if it was a good call, bad call after what it was. But it was a great call. I was... I had I was I was telling I actually rode back to the hotel with Hakeem Dermish uh, who was uh, doing CBS Sports HQ hosting uh, on site here. I was telling him I had accepted the fact that we were going to have Gonzaga lose at that point. I actually felt like it was faded, and when that was the charge, I thought, "Well, this is certainly interesting." And at that point, it felt like the best tournament game we had had on top of uh of everything in overtime. But I I. I'm with you 100% on this, man. There were multiple times before this where it seemed like the game was going to go UCLA's way and it was going to be a wrap. And the Suggs one, weirdly enough, and I want to get to that whole sequence as well, I just didn't think it was going to end on that shot because it was it was a quick turnaround. There was no timeout. And it was just a nonchalant why not because it's a tie game. You know, it's just like if, if it drops, it drops. And then it drops. And I just felt a... Of, of the, in the entire stadium where there was like immediate shock and reaction. And it just, it seemed like it, it just a, like a, a tear in the space time continuum where people, it just, it took a, a, a blink of a second to actually realize that that's what actually happened in that building. Phenomenal feeling. If you would have paused it end of regulation, when Johnny Juzang gets, when he gets by his guy and he's headed for the lane, if you would have paused it, I would have said this is over. He's either about to make this shot because he's been incredible or he's about to get fouled and then he'll make a free throw. At that moment, like I don't even know if you can um, if you can actually put a, a number on this, but in that moment when Juzang gets past his guy, what is the win percentage <laughs> for, for UCLA? I think it's pretty high. It's pretty high at that point. I thought, man, we just lost undefeated Gonzaga. I thought it was over. Timmy steps up, gets set, takes the charge, brilliant charge. Oh, and by the way, he's got four fouls. Mm-hmm. He so so you you if it's a charge, I mean, if it's a block, you, you probably lose it in regulation because he's going to make free throws. But if you go to overtime, still for some reason, you don't have Drew Timmy, who has been doubling as your best player. So I don't know if you could see uh, any of the replays, but Timmy like had a great facial expression as he was walking sort of off the court, like, you know, big eyes, like, woo boy. Like, do you realize how close we were to just losing if that whistle goes the wrong way? And just because it was the right call doesn't mean it was going to be the actual call. Officials screw that up all the time, but they got it right. They got it right. And so you then you go to overtime, and then we get to a point where, okay, Timmy comes out and scores the first six for Gonzaga in OT. And it, it looks like the Zags are going to be in control, but but they're not. They're ahead, but not. They haven't put the game away. So then Gonzaga's up 
two UCLA ball, and Juzang gets it again. And I have that moment again, like he's about to pull. He's about to pull from three, and he's going to win this game because he had been shooting well. Um, UCLA as a team had been shooting well. They shot 47% from three in this game. And so let me ask you this. If you're Gonzaga right there, because if I were if I were rooting for Gonzaga, I actually get excited in that moment when Juzang drives inside the arc because the alternative is launching from three, and I don't want them hitting a game-winning three-pointer on me. I'm ready to go to double overtime if he scores. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Zags were happy? Like, in, if yes. they're watching film tonight, they're happy he drove. Yes, thought about that very thing in that moment. Actually, I, was, I had Mike DeCorsi, a sporting news, you know, eight feet to my right. And so uh, I'm having a one-way conversation with him like multiple times through the evening. I'm like, Mike, he wants the three. He's hunting. He wants the three. He's hunting. I'm like, like talking to him. He's not answering me back. It's just I'm like so wrapped up in the moment there. I do think that they got what they wanted in that spot. Right. That's exactly. I, that, you know, if I were Mark Few, I got what I wanted when Juzang drives, even if Juzang scores. So, I mean, again, UCLA as a team shot 47.1% from three in the game. Juzang was three of six. The last thing I want with my undefeated season on the line is that guy launching a potential game winner in the final seconds. Uh, But either way, he drives, misses, offensive rebound, stick back. Now we're tied, and that's where we get with 3.3 seconds left. And, again, it all comes down to the catch. If you watch every UCLA player, because I went back and watched the replay like six times, every UCLA player gets back. They're, like, immediately getting back in transition. Nobody goes to sucks to try to deny the ball, which you probably couldn't do anyway, or even just try to bother him a little bit. Because, again, if you give an athlete of his caliber 3.3 seconds, he can get at least three dribbles. And he, he got exactly three dribbles. The first dribble came inside his own three-point line with about 2.8 seconds remaining. Second dribble comes just on the other side of his own three-point line, 2.3 seconds remaining. Third dribble comes just short of midcourt, 1.9 seconds remaining, at which point Jim Nance on CBS says the words, Gonzaga has time to do something. Then Suggs takes his gathers, takes his two get-me-closer-to-the-rim steps, and pulled up from about, I don't know, somewhere between 35 and 40 feet. But this was the key. And obviously, I had no idea whether the ball was going in or not. But here's the key. He shot it normally. Like, there's a difference when you're just, when you're just like Gordon Hayward sort of running and launching, even though that shot was close. It's not a, it's not a conventional shot. You might work on it in shoot-around or do it in shoot-around just because those types of things happen at the end of shoot-arounds all the time. But that, the Gordon Hayward shot that this gets compared to, on some level, that was like a dribble, dribble, running, shoot, you know, throw it. This was a dribble, 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 step, step, pull up. It was like a transition pull up three from far away. And so just given that he shot it with what was basically his normal shooting motion, I thought gave it a shot. Did I know it was going to bank in? Of course not. But when he pulled up, I guess this is what I would say. Um. Gonzaga for the championship or Gonzaga for the win 
even from the moment he launched, seemed a lot more likely than Dozier for the championship. Yes. Dozier for the championship was just a, a, a half-court heave. Uh, Suggs for the win was a, a, a normal shot from further away than he would rather take it. I was not surprised it had a chance. Um, I, always, I, I assumed in that moment it's going to have a chance. Um, and then, of course, it banks in, and next thing you know, Jalen Suggs is standing on a table celebrating and he's just become a forever highlight like one of the points i made in the column is you know the, the three decades from now if you're watching basketball in march you're gonna see that your kids will see that yep. your grandkids will see that that is christian leitner that is um bryce drew um that that is chris jenkins uh, that is an all-time great final four slash ncaa tournament shot some more stuff. First of all, as we record this podcast, CBS Sports Network is replaying the game, and we have reached overtime. They better replay this thing through mid-May because I'm gonna. I'm. This is one of those things where you know I didn't DVR this at home, but I want the. And maybe it'll be the entire thing will be uploaded to YouTube. But I'm gonna want to rewatch this entire game. It's an amazing ending. It was a phenomenal game. I'm gonna. I'm gonna reference here. When I got back to my hotel room, I saw this retweeted around. Uh, this is wild. So at Heat Check CBB, credit to you for kind of encapsulating what uh, what we had here. Obviously, the winner. The game was tied for six minutes and twenty three seconds of gameplay, which is a significant amount. There were nineteen lead changes. No team led by more than seven. There were no more than six unanswered points at any time in the game. There was no, there wasn't like a huge, huge run. Like it was always just high tension throughout. Really, from the first possession when uh, UCLA started with a bucket, Gonzaga answered with a three, and it was a two or one score deficit for forty-three minutes and fifty-one seconds out of the forty-five minutes that were played. It was just an all-time classic. It the now the ending is what everyone's going to talk about, but. You've got uh, numerous things about this game that were uh, noteworthy and that stand out. Credit to David Warlock of the NCAA for this. It's only the second Final Four game ever that doesn't include, I guess, third-place games where this was also the case, that both teams hit 90. In 87, Indiana won 97-93 over UNLV. We've got Gonzaga 93, Bruins 90 in this spot right here. High-scoring and extremely efficient. It's the first time ever in a Final Four game both teams shot better than 55% from the field. If you break it down between two-point shots and three-point shots, UCLA was 62% from two-point range and 47% from three-point range. Gonzaga, 71.4% from two. That includes 56 points in the paint. They were 7 of 21 from three. That's just 33.3%. And it's why the game was the way it was and how tight it was because Gonzaga's not a great three point shooting team. It's a merely a good three point shooting team. They finished at 1.26 point per possessions. UCLA finished at 1.22. It was highly efficient, extremely entertaining because of that. And it made the watchability and compelling nature of this that much better. Johnny Juzang finished with 29 points, six boards. He hit the the the, the layup that made Suggs' shot as dramatic as it was, period. Suggs had 16 points, five boards, six assists. The fact that Gonzaga wins the game again the way that it does, again, like not that it wasn't capable of doing this, Parrish, but we just did not see them in this spot the entire season. 14.5-point favorite, hadn't been pushed in the tournament. 
got pushed by BYU, and that was basically it. Like, even the West Virginia game way back when that was an eight-point spread, if you really watch that game, Gonzaga was going to win it. They were the better team there. It's it, it's a credit to those, those guys that they were able to do that because UCLA was playing in its comfort zone. It had been doing this for a long, long time. Shots, uh, the shots went up, were going up so frequently. ESPN Stats and Info said that Gonzaga and UCLA, their combined 58.2 shooting percentage is the highest in a Final Four slash championship game since Nova Georgetown was 63%, and a lot of that was, a lot of that was Nova's doing. So it just, I mean, it's just amazing. And when this, like we're watching right now in real time as this thing is in overtime, when they got, when Gonzaga got up here, like they're up 87, 83, they're going to get a little more of a, of a, of a gap. Did you think that it was going to, it was going to kind of, I thought in, for about a minute, I was like, okay, now this is going to go like, Gonzaga is going to do what Bama couldn't in overtime against UCLA. I, I thought it was going to end around six, seven, eight points and we'd be on our merry way. I did not anticipate that one final push from the Bruins. Yeah, no, neither did I. There were multiple times in the game where I thought Gonzaga was going to lose. Uh, by the time we got to, you know, middle of overtime, I was like, okay, this is it. Okay, they got pushed. They took the punch. Maybe they got lucky a little bit too. That, that may have played a role, but now they're okay. And I think initially it was when um, Timmy came out and just went bucket, bucket, bucket. Like he got three straight Gonzaga buckets. And I think that that created a four-point lead. And I was like, okay, he's cooking now. This is this is done, and then of course it just wasn't done, which is a testament to that UCLA team. Um, we, we talked about it plenty of times. They didn't get their top recruit to enroll. Their best player got hurt. Another rotation player left the team. Personal issues. This thing was really just sort of pieced together. I mean, they were the they were the third to last at large team in the field. Okay, there were projected brackets that didn't have them in the bracket on selection Sunday. They get in, they go to the first four. Basically, everybody picks them to lose to Michigan State. They're down 14 points to Michigan State. People forget that. They were down 14 points in the first four. Come back, and then, it, and then you know, win five games to, to get to the final four, which had only been done one time prior. That was by VCU and Shaka. And it is possible... And boy, I ain't ruling out anything after watching Baylor earlier on Saturday night. But it is possible this UCLA team will will forever go down as the team that pushed the eventual national champions further than anybody else. Again, I'm not ready to talk in absolutes um, after the way Gonzaga looked here and the way Baylor looked here mm -hmm. in the next to last game of the season. But, you know, Gonzaga is the favorite in the title game, and it is possible um, that UCLA will go down as the correct answer. Who pushed the Zags that year more than anybody else? And it, it, the answer might end up being Mick Cronin's UCLA Brewers. Yeah, I want to spend a quick minute on UCLA and what it was able to do and how close it came. I'm, I'm glad you kind of swerved into that lane there because I, it is so unlikely what they were able to do. And weirdly enough, actually, I talked with one of the UCLA assistants, Darren Savino, earlier in the day on Saturday, and we just kind of talked about a couple of things that he was expecting or anticipating. And But we also got to talking about what they had accomplished there and really how that team had just an unshakableness about it. Like, he had shared with me that when Alabama hit the three-pointer to send it to overtime... And I thought this was great. And I had this on my mind 
tonight, and I was going to incorporate the anecdote if UCLA won, but it didn't. He said the entire team was so pissed off at the way Alabama made that shot to send it to OT. And weirdly enough, it, they're not exactly the same shot, but you know the way that Bama extended that game with UCLA and then not fouling, and there wasn't a foul situation here. But they they were on the wrong side of that twice here. One, it extended the game. The other ended it. But he said, the guy, I could see the smoke coming out of their ears. I don't think they heard one word Mick Cronin told them in the, in the huddle. And they were just so pissed off that they tapped into something in that overtime that was unlike most anything they had done that entire season. They'd score, they scored 23 to, to advance there. And he said, they, after what they've been through, like there have been some frustrating losses. No Chris Smith, obviously. Didn't have the full roster that I thought they'd have getting to the tournament at this point. He, they had a really good belief that they were going to be able to keep this game close. One thing he was right about, he said, we cannot let them beat us on made shots. He said, it's not like they get into a good break action after a miss. They can. It's actually, after, after opponents make a shot on Gonzaga, they can turn on you and, and get a quick layup or a quick two better than anyone in college basketball. There were a few times tonight where that happened. And in fact, unfortunately, the very last play of the game was off a of UCLA make. This, this, is, this is muscle memory for Gonzaga. They run off the make. This is something Baylor is going to be very well attuned to, and I'll be interested to see, and we'll talk about that on the preview podcast, but um, how unfortunate yet predictable that just in terms of how that unfolded, that's exactly how it went down. But man, oh man, UCLA... Johnny Juzang having one of the best NCAA tournament performances on a team that didn't make a title game or, or lost in the Final Four ever. I mean, he will not be overshadowed, and history will treat him and this UCLA team kindly. We still have never had a double-digit seed make the championship game. Another double-digit seed goes down in the Final Four after getting there, but no double-digit seed has ever put up uh, a more impressive run because of pure, you know, Win total and, and VCU wasn't as good as UCLA was in, in the big picture here. It just wasn't. And pushing Gonzaga the way that it did was, it was just incredible, man. One more thing. I love that college basketball does not have the advance the ball rule. I talked about this on the postgame hit on HQ. The, the Part of the frenzy of the whole game perish, end of regulation, end of overtime. Cronin and Few did not use timeouts. They had them and they did not use them. It makes it that much more frantic, unpredictable, edge of your seat, white knuckle, and few just opted, no, we're just going to go. The fact that you go, don't get to advance the ball, it gives us fewer buzzer beaters overall, but it makes the ones that we get that much more cherished and that much better. They're so it, The play looks so much better than if you're inbounding near the, near the timeline and you're able to come off a screen and curl and hit a shot. Yeah, is it still thrilling? Of course it's still thrilling. But it ain't better than Jenkins up the floor to hit it at the buzzer, Grant Hill with an all-time pass to Leitner, uh, you know, fadeaway shot, this exact play that we had here by Jalen Suggs. So credit to college basketball and its powers that be because they had the opportunity to change this, actually. I think it was three years ago, and they voted not to. They better never, ever change it. It's the one thing College Hoops 100% gets right because when you get these moments, they're all-time and they're that much sweeter because of the degree of difficulty. I agree with you. But I don't feel as strongly about it as some of the people who feel really strongly about it feel. 
Um, I, I think you've got it exactly right. Advancing the ball allows for more reasonable game-winning opportunities. Like you're going to get good shots more often than you would without advancing the ball. But, um, it, it, but when you get those opportunities and those moments in college basketball without advancing the ball, they are undeniably better moments. It's the long pass to, to, to uh, Christian Leitner. It's the, the, the pitch back to Mario Chalmers. It's the watching the Chris Jenkins play develop. It's the Bryce Drew play, and then now it's the Jalen Suggs play. Like, it belongs in there. So I, I, think, I think you could argue either way, although I come down on the same side you do. Advancing the ball, you're going to have more opportunities for game winners, buzzer beaters. But not advancing the ball leads to some really unbelievable all-time great moments, and we, we happen to get one in, in this game. Um, on UCLA, real quick, do you, do you uh, understand – they played seven overtime games this season. <laughs> I, I looked, mean, they, they played yeah. 32 games and seven went to overtime. 21.9% of their games <laughs> went to overtime. Like one against Pepperdine, one against Gonzaga. It's wild. Um, the point you make about how they run on makes, it's funny. Um, you know, Ryan Hollins is my colleague, CBS Sports Network, and, and we've been working together a lot. And so we spend a lot of time together. And by the way, he's like one of the best guys ever. Like, you know, one of the really fortunate things we have at CBS Sports Network is, without exception, the former NBA players who work with us are awesome. Like, you know, they don't walk around like, I've got $100 million. I'm a former NBA player. Like, they're awesome. Wally Zerbiak, Ryan Gomes, um, Ryan Hollins. Like, they're all just terrific. And so Ryan, so, we're you know, we're just sort of talking, you know, and the, the way this stuff works is you have a call time and then it's like two hours before you go on the air. So, you, you know, we eat breakfast together. And um, I was like, so what did you get into last night? Uh, knowing that the answer is nothing because we're not allowed to do anything. And he's like, you know what I did, GP? I went back and watched the Gonzaga BYU game because I'm trying to figure out how, how, how my Bruins can, can make this competitive. And he said, the trick is you, you can't let them run on makes. That's what they want to do. He said they will he said most teams or lots of teams will run on misses. They run on makes. They'll take the ball out of the net and just throw it down the court. And so you've got to you've got to get back. You you got to stop that. Like you can't stop everything they do. Like I could tell you, yeah, yeah, they got to stop Drew Timmy and then they got to stop you know, slow down. You're not going to do all that. But you got to take that away. You can't just let a team take the ball out of the net, throw it down the court and score on you in 4 seconds. That, that's that's a deal breaker. And he said, so priority number one has got to, to, to be that. And what's wild, as you noted, is like that's the final play of the game. They took the ball out of the net. They got it to their incredible athletic point guard. Um, and he was hindered by nobody. He caught it on the run. He caught it headed the right direction. and the first thing you learn when it comes to playing transition defense, what is the first thing every, any practice you've ever been to? What is the, I mean, and I'm not talking about, you know, high major practice. I'm not talking about you're at Mike Krzyzewski's practice or John Calipari's practice or Bill Sills practice. I'm talking about you're at eight-year-old practice. What's the first thing to coach yes? What's priority number one? Get back on defense. Okay, then maybe priority number two. Stop the ball. Stop the ball. You have to stop the ball. And the first mistake UCLA made, 
keep in mind, in an incredibly scramble situation, I'm not blaming anybody, but when they let Jalen suck, all five Bruins immediately went back. Mm-hmm. And if you could stop and do that again, somebody would get, go to run right. to Jalen Suggs. Right. Just run to him. You're probably not going to deny the ball, but you got to bother him. You got to make, he's going to get three dribbles. Can you make one of them be a sideways dribble? Mm-hmm. Can you make one of, three dribbles running gets him to 35 feet. Can right. you, can, you have to slow him down. And if you slow him down, even for a dribble, that's all it takes. He's he's launching from the uh, from the wrong side it's, of it's, half court. It's, it might be fifty five feet. Exactly. That's exactly right. That one letting him get three uninterrupted dribbles going full speed straight ahead is what is what put UCLA in the position where they could lose the game on that shot. And given that that's the thing Darren told you they got to stop, and it's the thing Ryan Holland said they got to stop for the game to end on that sequence. I thought was just um, notable. Last thing for me is that, um, and I don't want to not mention this because I thought it was pretty great. Um, and I don't know if because the, the nature surrounding the game and the, the stadium wasn't filled or whatever, but after Suggs did all this, the fact that you had Suggs and, uh, and Jaime Jaquez like embracing like a huge like hug and like UCLA had a had a powerful moment as a team on the court after the game before they walked off. That was one of the last things I saw before I had to haul my booty over to the CBS Sports HQ set. Uh, that was pretty cool. That was just a really really cool visual. Um, I know TV cameras caught uh, a lot of that stuff, uh, but I was kind of locked in on it amid just trying to even comprehend that end of game sequence with no timeout there for Suggs. Uh, you know. Freshman in that spot, you hit the biggest shot of your entire life. Uh, And he said he jumped on the table like he wanted to be like D-Wade or Kobe. And then Dwayne Wade, this is why this is actually makes these things more fun in social media. Dwayne Wade, I don't know if you saw this or not, but he, someone had shared the press conference quote of Sugg saying like, I I always dreamed about hitting a shot and like jumping on the table after uh, the game, like Kobe or D-Wade. And Dwayne Wade goes, Bro, you had me jumping on my own kitchen table after this, like a laugh emoji. That is like that's just like, kind of like the the humanizing moment. Like you've got one of the fifty greatest players in NBA history being like, "You got me going nuts myself, man." That was a really cool moment, and with Hawkes and Suggs and just the the embrace between it was just an acknowledgement in the immediacy and powerful emotional level of that moment. Both teams knew what they just did, and. This will be I, – I, I just think this is the kind of game where you're going to get features and, hell, given this season, this tournament, like a downright a TV special about this kind of thing. You know, so that was, uh, that was cool to see. Yeah, there's a million awful things about social media. And honestly, like if we could wipe it out completely, I, 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 I'm, I'm for it. I, I think the, the cons outweigh the pros at this point. Like my poor girl Chrissy Teigen had to quit Twitter a few weeks ago. Um, but one of the cool things about social media is that I guess you could always reasonably assume that if you're playing in the Final Four, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, like that Michael Jordan's probably watching you. I mean, you could probably assume that, but there was no way to know. Now there's a way to know. You got LeBron James tweeting about, you know, the women's Final Four, mm-hmm. and then LeBron James tweeting about the men's Final Four. And that must be a real thrill. You know, Jalen Suggs is a star in his own respect. But, like, keep in mind, he grew up watching these people, idolizing these people. And to have them acknowledge him in a very public way, like, you know, Jalen Suggs will be on that stage next year, playing in that league as a multimillionaire. But, like, I still bet having Dwayne Wade 
say, dude, I was watching you tonight and you had me jumping on my own table. That, 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 that has to mean something. It would mean something to me. It would mean something to me. We'll discuss Baylor Houston next, but first let me talk to you about CBS sports HQ, the NCAA tournament still unfolding, but we only have one more game to go. College basketball season going to be over in two days. But if you want to stay up to date with everything else in the sports world, best place to do it, CBS Sports HQ. It's your streaming answer. And when news breaks, and it always does, CBS Sports HQ will be on it immediately. Sports never sleeps. Neither does CBS Sports HQ. It's available on your computer, your phone via the CBS Sports app, and your connected TV. I stream it all day. You should, too. It's CBS Sports HQ, a free 24-hour sports news network. So the first national semifinal – on Saturday, that was Baylor against Houston. It was not close. It was uncompetitive. Final score, Baylor 78, Houston 59. The Bears led by 25. 25 points at the half. 45 to 20. Houston never got closer than 16 points in the second half. Uh, dead leg, I know this is like a game that, at this point, you and I are probably the only ones talking about it because everybody's talking about Gonzaga UCLA but it is still worthy of our attention if only because um, it was a national semifinal and B it looked like peak Baylor did it look like peak Baylor to you it most definitely did in fact I'd even argue that uh, Houston played to respectability levels in the second half and Baylor was just basically able to keep it in third gear after that because in the first half Baylor looked incredible and everyone except Marcus, I think Marcus Sasser, Houston had 20 points, and I think Sasser had 17 of the 20 in the first half. That's right. Nobody else had more than two. Amazing, amazing. And after the game, Scott Drew said, I mean, I, I can't, he basically said, I can't tell you if we're back, but I'm just telling you, like, to me, it looks like we're all the way back. And then Jared Butler was also asked, and he said, yeah. We're all the way back here, and it certainly looks like that. They uh, they looked all around brilliant, basically. I mean, Davion Mitchell, how about this? He had 11 assists. Houston had 10 as a team, and he had no right. turnovers. 11 assists and no turnovers. Like, By the way, he's the first play- player since 1987 with at least 10 assists and zero turnovers in a Final Four game. Stupid. And Butler, like Jared Butler, was four or five from three point range. He led the team with 17. He played well. You, even like the small stuff, and I did detail this in my overnight column as well. Uh, like Jonathan Chama Chachua having 11 points was his most in a game in the year 2021. Like he, the smaller stuff, which is big, I think surfaced in a significant way. I thought Mark Vidal was like typical Mark Vidal. Like he, did, he did a little bit of everything on the defensive end to make it easier on the rest of the guys there. And, because Gonzaga's UCLA ended the way that didn't played out the way that it did, and because Baylor was able to do this against Houston, again, I am not. I saw a little bit of like, well, this is the second time Houston's played a ranked team this season, and this is what you get. All right, if you want to, uh, if you want to beat your drum to that tune, go ahead, I guess. But Baylor was playing a viable, you know, empirically top ten good team. In college basketball, they're still fifth at Ken Palm as we record this podcast tonight here. So uh, they had demonstrated throughout the entire season that they were a worthy opponent. They were worthy of the two seed, and I didn't discount them because they didn't have to play a single seed on the way to the Final Four. This was just Baylor showing up, ready to go, and making their game against Gonzaga more of a mystery than I think anyone reasonably could have expected. Even if you wanted to be a little bit daring and say that you thought Baylor was going to win the national championship this year, 
no one, at least almost no one, was going to end Saturday, go into Sunday and Monday thinking, well, damn, if Baylor plays the way it plays and Gonzaga plays the way it plays, Baylor's going to win. And remember, Gonzaga shot extremely well from the floor, but defensively, Baylor is, I mean, it's back. I don't know what to tell you. It's, it's held opponents to 55, 63, 51. Arkansas had to make a run to get to 72, and then it was 59 against Houston. They are in fine form. And congrats to Scott Drew and that team for getting there for the first time. I wasn't able to listen to the telecast. I would hope Bill Henderson's name got dropped on television tonight. But if it didn't, obviously, Billy H, 48. Baylor's back for the first time since then. Hashtag Bill can stay. I still think I am the only person on this planet who has said Bill Henderson's name on national television. It's, it's the most disrespectful stuff I've ever seen. Like, that man went to two Final Fours in a three-year span. Like, we, we were, like, people were, like, all, all excited about the idea that Porter, Porter Moser might do it. Might do it. Oh, Porter Moser did. Porter Moser did. Gets the Oklahoma job because he almost did it. Bill Henderson did it. 48 and 50. Now Baylor back in the title game. First time since 48. Bill Henderson coached that team. He used to tie his shoes in the middle of the game when he would get nervous. Say his name. It's not hard. Billy Shoelace Henderson. Billy Billy Shoelace. Billy Laces. All you got to do is, like, it, it just on Monday night. Come on now. Who do I need to talk to? Exactly. I feel, like, I feel like I need to take this to Grand Hill. I think you do. New new president of USA Basketball, apparently, by the way. You I need think to I'm take just going to – I'm going to pull Grand Hill aside. I feel like I could get Grant's number. <laughs> I think we have the same agent. <laughs> just shoot him, a bl- shoot him a blind text. Be like, yeah, a blind text. Listen. Hey, listen, Grant, GP here. Um, I need you at some point on Monday night to when somebody says – and Baylor is now, because it's going to come up, Baylor's in the national championship game for the first time since 1948. It'll probably be in the intro. It'll probably be right at the top. Just add these words. Baylor's in the national title game for the since, first time in, since 1948 when Bill Henderson took the Bears there and lost to Kentucky. It's, not, it's like all we're can, asking for. It's, it's not a lot. Seamless. Bill Henderson has kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, great I'm assuming. You know, how, what would it be like for Bill Henderson's family to be able to hear Bill Henderson's name on America's Most Not Watched Network on Monday night? Make, you could make the Henderson family smile. All you got to do is say the words Bill Henderson. So how I'll about this? You and I are on an HQ segment Sunday night, I think in the 8 o'clock hour. I think it's going to be an overnight thing. So go find CBS Sports HQ, as GP just told you about a couple minutes ago. You want to set the over-under on us dropping Bill Henderson at 4.5 in our segment? Because we can. I, I'll set a record on – on. there's a, a, a bit on a, a Time to Shine show when, when I do that with Evan Washburn usually um, or sometimes just host it myself. I, uh, there's a bit called uh, My Guy, and the, the trick is you got to – no matter who you're talking about, you got to call him your guy. So, like, we'd be talking about the Texans, and I'd be like, my guy, Deshaun Watson, which, by the way, is something I would never say now. Never, not my guy anymore. But it'd be like, my guy, Mark Few, my guy, 
uh, Bill Henderson, my guy Jared Butler. Um, and so we will treat Bill Henderson like that on HQ. We'll just randomly say Bill Henderson as much as we can on Sunday night's HQ. Speaking of Jared Butler, met the Butler family today on the streets of Indianapolis. Okay. How'd that even happen? Well, I was walking walking back from set and uh, about to go into my hotel, and a gentleman stopped me, and he said, Gary. And I said, yes, sir. And he said uh, he just wanted to introduce himself. And he said, uh, I, I'm Jared, Jared Butler's father. And I said, oh, wow. He said, we listened to the podcast. Oh, Jared my Butler. gosh. I swear to God. <laughs> yes. Oh yes, I met, the, I, met, I, met, I met Mr. Butler, Mrs. Butler, Jared Butler's sister. I met everybody. We spent, I think this might be in violation of CBS rules. I hope I don't get in trouble. I'm just trying to be nice. Spent like 10 minutes with the Butler family this afternoon on the streets of Indianapolis. This would have Pleas- been before their game. Yes, before the game. Pleasant people. Wonderful family. You want to you try to figure out why Jared Butler's awesome? Seems to come from an incredible family. So then he goes out and makes four or five three-pointers. He was awesome. His teammates were awesome. By the way, like you, you mentioned Houston. And if, listen, if people are going to – I spent like half the past 15 years trying to tell people to stop being skeptical of Gonzaga. So, like, I, I can't fight Houston's fight either also. You know, like, I'm not trying to convince anybody. But Houston entered this game top 10 in offensive efficiency, top 10 in defensive efficiency. They couldn't score on Baylor, and they couldn't stop Baylor from scoring. Think about that. Mm-hmm. This is a Houston team that, according to the metrics, according to Ken Palm, elite on both sides of the ball. They could not score on Baylor. They could not stop Baylor from scoring. Dominated them from start to finish. And some of it was because Baylor offensive rebounded better than Houston offensive rebounded. Like, Houston, in its first four games in the NCAA tournament, had taken at least nine more shots than its opponent in every game because of offensive rebounding. They took 15 more shots than Oregon State in the Elite Eight. Took 17 more shots than Cleveland State in the round of 64. Against Baylor, Houston took 55 shots. Baylor took 55 shots. Baylor grabbed 13 offensive rebounds. Houston grabbed 14. Here's the thing. Baylor only missed 26 shots in the game. They grabbed 13 offensive rebounds. They only missed 26 shots. Houston missed 34 shots and grabbed 14 offensive rebounds. So Baylor, both both teams offensive rebounded incredibly well. But Baylor did it better. And so Baylor was never threatened. That was, I think, after Saturday's two semifinals, Gonzaga, Jalen Suggs is the story. Undeniably, Baylor was the team that turned into better performance. Yeah, and the games were flipped from what we expected. We thought, <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, come on now. We thought Gonzaga was going to be able to separate from UCLA and have a sort of a routine second half, and we thought that Baylor-Houston was certainly capable of being a pretty close game, and it just wasn't. So Houston had a listen, Houston had a really good run. It gets to the Final Four for the first time since 84. The program is still in fine hands under Kelvin Sampson and is positioned to be, you know, of top three or four seed variety going forward, provided that they can continue to uh, keep their kind of players in the program the way that they have there. But Baylor, come on now. Come on now. This is this is what we were hoping to get. And, and by that I mean them to return to what they were so that we could see the Baylor we knew in December and January be in the tournament and at full strength. They are there. Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, 
and Macy Oteague are the starting three guards. But if you want to throw in Adam Flagler there, it's just one of the best four-guard attacks, deployments, however you want to define it, in college basketball in 15, 20 years. I'm not saying it's the very best. It's among the very best. They're all better than 40% from three-point range, and two of the dudes are outstanding defenders. And Davion Mitchell's the best defender in college basketball. And, oh, by the way, Mark Vidal's like top 10 as well. He's the guy who goes switches one to five there. So, man, this is going to be an awesome game on Monday. It better be an awesome game. But Baylor doing what it did was, uh, listen, it made it, made it easy on me to, to file that column that I got to be honest, about 90% of it was written once Baylor was done with the idea that Gonzaga was going to move on. We, oh, my gosh. If UCLA won that game, we might have been podcasting starting around 2.45 a.m. So, so thank you for uh, giving us the game that everyone – not everyone, but most people have been clamoring for after it was ultimately canceled on December 5th, which is four months prior to the day of when they will play the title game. How about this? Uh, so I was on CBS Sports HQ in between the two national semifinals with the great Hakeem Dermish and, and Avery Johnson and Tim Doyle. And so Baylor had just blown out Houston, and Gonzaga is getting ready to play UCLA. And we're, it's it's remarkable the differences between HQ and like Sports Network. Like on HQ, we just we have time to talk, like for long periods of time. Where with CBS Sports Network, everything is there's so many people and there's so little time. Like you really, you know, you got to be quick. So we're just talking. We're just sort of talking like four guys just sort of talking about, you know, what's happening. And it it just sort of turned into a, a Gonzaga Baylor national championship preview. We were just talking about like. You know, now with Baylor playing like this, you know, he's got to make you rethink, you know, like, and at some point, Tim Dole was like, so have we just decided UCLA lost? Like, we just decided, like, that's, that's not that this game that's about to happen right behind us still hadn't tipped off. Like, we already, and I was like, yeah, we kind of have, like, barring a massive upset, uh, we know who's playing Monday night. It was way closer than most people thought it would be. The other game was, a blowout in a way that almost nobody thought it would be. That's that's the nature of sports. Before we get out of here, and my God, it's 2.40. Before we get out of here, I do want to spend just a few minutes on Monday's title game, so we'll do that next. But first, check this out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So the national title game is set. It's Gonzaga versus Baylor. Preseason number one versus the preseason number two. It's two number one seeds. In fact, it's the 
number one overall seed and number two overall seed, according to the NCAA's official seed list. One team is 31 and 0, the other team is 27 and 2. So they are a combined 58 and 2. Um, if UCLA would have gotten here, I would have been happy for Mick and that program. If Houston would have gotten here, I would have been happy for Kelvin and that program. This is the title game, right? This is the one we, deep down, the one that I think we always deserved. And I think the one most people outside of Houston fans and UCLA fans at the end probably wanted. This sets up brilliantly. And I think the fact that UCLA got really threatened in the, I mean, that, that Gonzaga got really threatened in the game before the title game. And Baylor is the team that looked completely overwhelming in the game before the title game sort of adds to it. If not, if this would have gone down where Baylor won a tight game against Houston, which was expected, and, and Gonzaga beat UCLA by a billion, which is what people expected, it'd be like, oh, yeah, the Zags will do to Baylor what they do to everybody. But having just watched these two games on Saturday night, and Baylor is the one that looked awesome, and Gonzaga was the one on the robes, I think it makes Monday night even that much more interesting. Exactly. We've got plenty of drama and suspense going into this. Not to say that Gonzaga can't beat Baylor by 13. Of course it can. You know, certainly it seems many outcomes are possible here. This is the first time since 2005. I actually went to Dave Warlock with the NCAA at the start of Gonzaga UCLA with the assumption Gonzaga would win. I said, listen, uh, can you go ahead and pull up the history of the selection committee's overall seeding? I want to know the last time that the two top seeds in the eyes of the committee actually met in the title game. I, my guess was Florida, Ohio State, 07, but it wasn't. It's 05, Carolina, Illinois. Weirdly enough, Roger Powell is a Gonzaga assistant. He played in the Illinois-Carolina game in 05. So that's the most recent time that we had that. The most recent time we had two preseason number one and number two teams was 2001 when heading into that season, Duke and Arizona were preseason one and two, now Gonzaga and Baylor. It's not just that these teams have, for the most part, I'm not going to you know toss aside the fact that Illinois and Michigan entered that conversation once Baylor had its COVID pause, Michigan came out of its own and still looked pretty pretty good for the most part there, or even right before that. It's that these two teams heading into the season and a season ago were so good. Had we had a 2020 tournament, sure, Kansas might have won it. Dayton might have won it. But Gonzaga or Baylor might have won it. They're a combined 115-8 and eight the past two seasons, GU and BU. It's incredible. This is... Ideal, And we'll break this down more on our preview episode leading into Monday night's game. But I will say this, and I was surprised. They showed this graphic on HQ when I did my overnight hit. So this is going to be the fifth time ever that the preseason one versus two has have met in the title game. The two in the preseason, no matter where it was seated uh, com- per the committee GP, the two is always one. 2001. Duke was number two in the preseason. Arizona was number one. Duke won the championship that year. In 99, UConn beat Duke that season. It was number two in the preseason. You got to go way back before that. UCLA beating Michigan in 65. And that was the that really kick-started the UCLA dynasty, that 65 championship for, for uh, the second greatest coach in the history of UCLA basketball. And then in 62, you had Cincinnati beating Ohio State 
Uh, so the two, the preseason two, we'll see if Baylor can continue the trend or if Gonzaga can make history there. But uh, the point of my column basically was to was to praise Baylor for what it had done and return to form. But it has been an imperfect season, as expected, with plenty of COVID pauses and, and stops and cancellations left and right, as people anticipated. But after what we saw Saturday night and how this lines up with Gonzaga versus Baylor, which was the predominant talking point, for a long time, they these teams, as a reminder to anyone that might be catching on to this podcast now and, w- and wasn't listening in last summer, early part of the season, Mark Few and Scott Drew knew they would have two of you know the three or four best teams in the nation, right? They lost their Pac-12 opponents when the Pac-12 temporarily said, we're not going to allow any of our teams to play before um, the second semester. So they intentionally scheduled each other late into the summer, which we never, ever, ever see from really, really good teams in college basketball that late. They pivoted into it. They were going to play in December. That game got canceled at the last hour because of a COVID issue with Gonzaga in Indianapolis when they were supposed to play at Bankers Live Fieldhouse. And now it's 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 turned into the best possible ending leading up to this. I don't know if it'll be a blowout or whatever. And for me, Parrish, I'm, it's, now that we have this, I'm glad that we didn't get it to start with. Yes, if they played the first time, it'd be like, oh, it's the rent vengeance factor. Can the other team win after they lost the first time? I get that. That would have been great too. But the fact that we haven't gotten it yet, it just adds that much more uncertainty to the matchup. And it's the best possible way to not only end the season, but to end the tournament after going two years without it. Uh, it's it's a pretty poetic thing. And I, and I can't wait for Monday night. We will discuss the national title game in more detail in an episode that will be recorded Technically later today, because it's 2.47 in the morning. But we will do another episode of the Island College Basketball Podcast before the national championship game. And I think when we'll do it is sometime after I get off CBS Sports Network on Sunday, but before we do CBS Sports HQ together on Sunday. I think our show on CBS Sports Network airs from 1 to 5 Eastern. And then we're CBS Sports HQ at 8.30 Eastern. I feel like that's our window. It's not. I'm on CBS Sports HQ at 6. We'll figure it out. This is getting getting complicated. I know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out one way or the other. By the way, reminder, people have two days left. You have two days. I mean, don't you want a 65-inch television? Uh, GP's got like two 75-inch ones, so maybe he doesn't want one. Three 75-inch ones. Exactly. But CBS Sports and Westinghouse are teaming up to give a 65-inch television to celebrate the end of this college basketball season. You're getting Baylor, Gonzaga, and you might be getting a 65-inch television, but only if you go to cbssports.com backslash ioncbb to enter. You got to enter. It ends April 6th. cbssports.com backslash ioncbb. No purchase necessary. 18 plus U.S. only. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. F. and Teagle. Legend. Shouts to Larnell. Shouts to Jared Butler's entire family. Nicest people in the world. Appreciate you guys listening to the Ion College Basketball Podcast once again in the middle of the dumbest pandemic of my lifetime. This was too much. This is just too much. I met Jared Butler's family. Nicest people. Took pictures with them, the whole deal. Had to do it in a mask. Had to do it in a mask. You know why? Because we're in the middle of a dumb pandemic still. Had to go get St. Elmo carry out today. I got it. You got, got it? it? Dude. It's, you realize that it's no longer open, right? What do you mean it's no longer open? 
It, there's a sign on the door of St. Elmo right now. They got a COVID in-house. So oh. you better be thankful you're a fully vaccinated man. Okay, this is interesting because I did a carryout order on DoorDash where I would I ordered through DoorDash, but I was going to go pick it up because I just wanted to pick it. I didn't want to deal with a delivery person and, and, and run the risk of my food not being as hot as it could possibly be. So I said, uh, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go pick it up because, I mean, it's a three-minute walk from my hotel. I love downtown Indianapolis. You walk anywhere. So I went, I went, and I just went to walk in the – got my mask on, went to walk in the front door. Then I realized I was wearing sweatpants and, like, a, a hoodie, and I was like, I am dressed so inappropriately to go inside this place right now, but I'm just getting a carry order. So I try to walk in the front door like a normal person, and this, this gentleman, he, stumps, he steps right in front of me almost, like he's, uh, like he's trying to draw a charge, like he's Drew Timmy. Like he's Drew Timmy and I'm Johnny Juzang. And I said, uh, he, got, he said, I'm sorry, sir, but we're closed. And I said, well, that's weird. It's like, you know, not a time where you should be closed. I thought that. I didn't say it. I said, but I put in a carryout order. Am I still okay to get the carryout order? He said, oh, yes, 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 sure. But you got to go in this other door. You got to go do your thing. I went inside and there were people eating, like still eating inside. So I'm, I think I was there after they had got the order, you got to shut it down, but we're not going to kick everybody out in the middle of a meal. That must have been when I was there. So I went in, I grabbed my bag, and I walked back, walked back, and I, 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 I unloaded it. Shrimp cocktail, Cobb salad, lobster bisque, eight-ounce filet, Oh, my gosh. How are you even awake right now? I'm not sure I'm awake right now. That's the trick. I'm not sure I'm actually awake right now. Well, here's the thing. It was weird. They kept making you order things. I, on door, I think I got tricked on DoorDash. You got tricked. They're not making you order anything. Yeah, you got like, tricked. Well, like I, I was like, okay, I'm definitely getting the shrimp cocktail because I want my face to burn. And then I, and then I was like, I like salad, so I'll get a small cup salad. And then it was like, oh, you know, just get a fillet. That'll be it. And then I tried to hit checkout, and they said, uh, you must pick soup. <laughs> I, was like, I, ha- I was like, I have to. I have to pick a soup. I don't like, I really don't want a soup. And they were like, lobster. I was like, fine, I'll take the lobster bisque. I was like, all right, check out. And they were like, you must pick a side. I'm like, I, do I really have to pick a side? And then I wasn't going to argue with a website. I'm in no position to do that. So I was like, I'll take Brussels sprouts, I guess. Next thing you know, I got like $120 dinner <laughs> for myself. It, it just felt stupid, but I had to do it at least once. The point is, this is the point. This is the pandemic's fault. I didn't have to... In normal circumstances, I could have been sitting in that restaurant, no mask on, declining lobster bisque. But given that we're in the middle of the dumbest pandemic of my lifetime, I had to accept the lobster bisque plus the Brussels sprouts. I had to throw some Brussels sprouts away. I couldn't eat all this food. It's too much. It's the dumbest. I never seen one like this. I never. I, I never seen just, one like I this. I should have just not talked about Baylor Houston. Just giving you ten minutes to talk about the pandemic. It's just. It's almost. I didn't see, it's almost. I didn't, th- see, I didn't see this one coming. It's almost three a.m. If you're not subscribed to the Iron College Basketball Podcast, please go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it, and we will talk to you again at some point on Sunday. We can't promise you when. We got a lot of stuff to juggle. Plus. I read somewhere that sleep's important. So we gotta we gotta knock that out too. But we will talk to you again on Sunday. Till then, take care.